With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Podcast name play nobody. Um, Alex, honestly, before we really even start in earnest, uh, how are you, honestly? You know, man, I am doing fine. I've been really lucky so far that the many horrors that this that these crises are bringing about have yet to hit my family or me so very thankful for that but obviously concerned how are you i'm pretty stressed out man it uh it's been a month um even before the uh before covid our covid reality you know was dealing with some apartment stuff trying to find a roommate all that kind of stuff then we splashed in a spice of uh pandemic uh so it's uh it's hard and it's stressful and I, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's really weird. <laughs> it's just a really weird reality that we're all living in. And it, it's kind of why I wanted to like start the podcast like that. Cause I kind of don't want to ignore that in lieu of football, because as usual, like football yeah. is our escape and it's a thing that we do for fun, but also like we, everybody listening to this, like we feel what you feel. It is hard for us. Um, and I don't know. We're just going to get through it. Uh, let's talk about some ball. I think we got a few people listening to this show. I know of at least one, and I'm guessing there are more, who work in grocery stores, probably some who work in healthcare. Uh, we appreciate you. You guys are doing the Lord's work right now uh, and pretty much are guaranteed to not get all of the thanks that you deserve. Um, so thank you. And we hope that whether that's you or not, you enjoy this episode. Uh, we're going to talk for a few minutes about some coronavirus college football things. Uh, we're going to talk for a, a lot more time about some non-coronavirus college football things. Uh, and then we'll talk about some non-football things. It's an Ask PAPN. So uh, these questions came in from the audience and we appreciate that very much. Indeed, Chris Lippincott asked the question that is on everybody's mind right now. Uh, assuming we don't get football this season, uh, how long do you think the tail should be on adjustments to scholarships, uh, roster numbers, etc.? Alex, I know you're you're passionate about the logistics of our college football rosters right now. Yeah, the the difficult thing here even goes beyond scholarships. It's just a matter of space at some point. I was little talking things, little things. Yeah. So I was talking with a recruiting director last night at a group of five school uh, who was like, yeah, I mean, we have 115, maybe 120 lockers and that's our capacity. Uh, he was at another school previously in the same state and the capacity there was 117. Uh, that doesn't mean scholarship guys, obviously, because you have 85 scholarship, but it just means that, you know, with all your walk-ons and everybody you have in your program, uh, at some point you run out of physical space and that might be different for like an Alabama or a Georgia, but it's like that for most schools. Uh, so the thing that gets really interesting at the top is, you know, say that you don't have college football this year and your senior class wants to hang around to play another year of football. That wouldn't be everybody, but it could be, you know, 15, 20 players. Uh, at some point you're going to be getting pretty tight. Uh, if, if you bring in anything close to a normal sized freshman class. Uh, so it's an issue definitely and hard to even wrap our heads around it at this point. But I would imagine that in the event that there were no college football this year, 
there would probably be at least a one-year grace period on scholarship limits, of at least on the 85 count for FBS, so that some players could come back. The wrinkle in that is that if there's no college football, will there have been high school football? Will the class of 2021 matriculate as usual to campus? I mean, obviously schools are still recruiting away right now, even as they are barred from doing so in the physical ways that they have traditionally done it. But there are just so many variables that other than saying you're going to have to figure this out somehow and probably give some leeway to some things you usually wouldn't, it is really hard to figure it out. Yeah, I you know, I think, you know, beyond the team stuff and scholarships and roster numbers, like I think about like local bars and restaurants. Like what happens if Gainesville, Tuscaloosa, Auburn, if those establishments miss out on six home game revenue days. You know what I mean? Like that's sort of the stuff that I'm thinking about as well as when we get, you know, above football. And I'm not trying to be like, you know, Mr. Social Justice worry about this kind of thing. But like, these are the things we have to think about. Like the sport touches so many different facets of life. And, you know, what happens if, what happens to people who want to finish their degrees, players who aren't going to the league, none of that stuff, players who aren't, who just want to finish their degrees. You know what I mean? Um, and, and for parents who counted on, you know, even not in, not in football, but in like a partial sport where your parents may be footing some of your scholarship or you're not, you know, there, there is no offset on an academic scholarship like there is for maybe a baseball player who three quarters of the scholarship may come for the team. And then, you know, the financial aid department kicks in the other quarter. Like what happens to that kid's parents who, you know, weren't budgeting for having to help that kid finish college? And, and now maybe mom or dad maybe is laid off because of what's going on in the world or going on unemployment and all that kind of stuff like this thing. It's like it it the word is scary. The word is scary about when you think about how potentially this thing can play out and and the I don't want to use the word, I don't know if trust is the right word, but, or faith, or I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but in, in a sense of like how the quote unquote adults in the room in college sports are going to handle this, I, I, I don't even know how I feel about what I think about those men and women, like how those men and women, their competency in handling this in a, in a way that is effective for everybody. And, and that prioritizes the athlete, the student athlete, um, you know, what, what is the feeling about how they will run college sports through a very, very, very difficult time? Um, I don't know, man. It's, it's so much is up for grabs right now. It's extremely complicated and very hard to figure out because of all the different ways it could go. Uh, Nicholas Eckert asked, Richard, what happens if we have delayed starts to college football or just college due to this pandemic. The the thing there that I I want to zero in on, so let's say we start the college football season October 15th, and I'm just throwing something out there. We start the college football season October 15th, and there becomes a decision where, okay, we're only going to play conference games, right? If, if that becomes something that we do here, what ha- like that's when I really start fearing for FCS and G5 teams that need those. Like if we're skipping September, we're skipping the non-con. We are skipping some things that, as we talked about on our episode last week with Matt Brown, are some pretty staple budgetary necessities for how the ecosystem of college football works. I think one of the most 
one of the more plainly spoken um, explanations of this beyond the podcast that we did with Matt last week is actually if you look at Jimbo Fisher, Jimbo Fisher has talked about this a little bit. And when he was at Florida State, he mentioned how the college football ecosystem worked in kind of very plain spoken terms. Um, and and we brought it up on that podcast last week. And, and that is where I am like, whoa, what happens if we truncate the schedule or lop some off or only play conference games? That, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I wonder about this too, from a power five standpoint. I mean, the point is well taken and absolutely true about what will happen to the schools that get these guarantees to get killed. But you know, what happens if, uh, if the season starts, you know, halfway through it normally would, what happens to the TV money that would go to a big 10 school? And, you know, we talked a lot last week about how the loss of NCAA tournament money is going to sting a bit for the big schools and, you know, potentially a lot for schools at the lower end of D1. If your football money is messed with even a little bit, that becomes a much bigger budgetary problem. And unlike the NCAA tournament thing, that one can't be absorbed over a period of years because of the way units work. So like, you know, let's say that every Big Ten school is going to get $50 million or thereabouts from its contract with, you know, ESPN and with Fox. What if that becomes 35 or 30? I mean, I don't know uh, what the insurance arrangement is for conference agreements like that. And I don't think anybody knows outside of the administrators themselves, but um, suddenly you're talking about a really big and really immediate portion of your operating revenue. Uh, and that would have, I think, even a, a more significant effect than the loss of tournament money. So it would not be a good deal financially. Yeah, I think the the the, the anxiety, along with so many other facets of life, is kind of in the unknown, I think, when we start to hopefully get a handle on this thing and start to understand what exactly can happen this fall in a sense of what we can do in life in general. Uh, hopefully this fall, I think that's when we start to kind of get some concrete answers to some of these big picture questions in college sports. Uh, Brett Morey asks, asks, assuming we do have a season, uh, how will missing spring practice and likely at least part of summer conditioning affect teams this year? Will there be teams that more that are more or less affected? Um, and, uh, the, I think we kind of tailed that into, uh, Alec Cartwright's question, how much more dysfunctional will the leech air raid look in Starkville now that Mississippi state doesn't have a full off season to practice it. We've mentioned on the podcast before, right around the time that Mike was hired the air raid specifically, and Alex kind of has an interesting anecdote here, but the air raid specifically is a scheme that really, really needs to be drilled a lot in earnest. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I remember one of my favorite football books and books, uh, books in general is The Perfect Pass by S.C. Gwynn, which is kind of about how Hal Mummy and Mike Leach, you know, established the air raid and goes back to uh, their days at Iowa Wesleyan Community College 20 some 30 years ago, uh, where they kind of made their bones and, and started to develop this offense. It's just reps, baby. Reps, reps, reps. I mean, you don't. Do <laughs> when you that. only got six plays, yeah. you better master them. Yeah, you don't do that many different things in the air raid, but the timing and and the uh, communication between quarterback and receiver has to be so seamless, or it just doesn't work. And the only way to do that uh, is to get your money's worth out of your practice time. So I do think that uh, the mix of that being the offense that Leach runs and the conference that they are going to, uh, happening to be a defensive conference of some repute, uh, is not a great recipe for Mississippi State 
uh, if we do play football in 2020. I, I think the uh, yeah. other there's there's like what is the value of spring practice even so I I was sitting with a coach uh, last month and he was like the way we structure our scheme offense and defense is to be complementary and the way we do that is we look at the year and we say from the second the bowl games end right the second the season ends we've got 45 practices against each other spring and fall uh, fall camp where there is no opponent. There, there is just ourselves. And so when when teams sit and think about what they want to run, like literally what they want to run ph- philosophically, th- this stuff kind of factors in in a sense of if we're going to go good on good through spring, we want to have something that is – this is what this coach was telling me. If we want to go good on good in spring, we want to have something um, that we run that at least has overlap with most of the teams on our schedule. Basically, the, the I kind of was asking him about like the triple option, why you either do or don't or would or wouldn't want to run the triple option flexbone. And he was like, I don't want to give my team for 45 practices something they're not going to see across 12 games. And that was kind of what he was talking about. But that shows, I think, some of the value of spring. You're not exactly putting in. You know, you're not putting in your third down package really in spring. You're not putting in some of your specialized stuff, but you are laying the base of your scheme um, and and whatever it is that you want to change or tweak or whatever. So spring is not spring is not exactly the throwaway that I think a lot of people may consider because when you look at it through the lens of the spring game, then yeah, it is. Spring games are probably going the way of the dodo bird anyway. But when you look at what actually happens day by day uh, as teams look to get better, there is a serious value there and there is going to be a value lost. Now, you know, are we going to see, let's say we have a 2020 season, are we going to see really sloppy play because all we may be able to have is like some mini camps in July? I I don't know. Um, But that is, again, part of the unknown here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Josiah Mentz asks, or I think it might be Josiah Mentz, excuse me, asks, uh, what impact do we think this pandemic will have on the under the table side of recruiting? Will it be more difficult for bagmen if they can't really make drops and such without a physical or digital paper trail? And will that affect the 2021 cycle? Yeah, I know it's, (laughs) I think it's funny because I, I had a coach who told me, he was like, uh, there is a certain school who uh, like got a recruit DoorDash or the food delivered. Um, how we skirt the rules over the next few months, I think, is going to be very, very interesting. I know it's well within the rules, but I think w- like AM is doing the like Madden tournament with recruits um, and and coaches, right? Yeah, yeah, it's smart. Uh, yeah. That's kind of a yeah. way to kind of get around this. Yeah, I think there's things are going to be very digital in general. I think outreach efforts are going to be extremely digital. This is another thing that I was talking about with a friend of mine uh, on a staff the other night. It's it's going to be entirely about who can deliver the most convincing pitch via nothing but the internet and the phone. And uh, I don't know, it'd be interesting if, if we saw recruits getting into crypto this year. Uh, and, and <laughs> Cash app, Cash app, which which a lot of young people have. Uh, has a Bitcoin wallet attached to it. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that a smart bag man 
uh, would start, you know, tracking the Bitcoin market and and making transfers that way. It's, it's well, the problem the problem there as the problem there as you realize this year, oh, yeah, whenever do. you do, do file your taxes, is that you have yep. to file your taxes yep. on Bitcoin on Bitcoin gains, right? You you have to file your taxes on Bitcoin sales. Uh, Bitcoin sales. And, and okay. yeah, I was. I mean, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna admit to any wrongdoing of any kind here. But you know, of course not. But because you know, we we wouldn't we wouldn't do that. But I was a little bit chapped when I realized that uh, for certain sports related transactions uh, that were made <laughs> last year, that that Uncle Sam had learned about that, and that I had to go and uh, you know. And, and deal with with the tax man about that. So uh, you'd have to you'd have to be be smart about it. There's no question. Yeah, the uh, they're gonna get what's theirs uh, by hook or by crook. And so that I think is <laughs> crypto. I'm like really laughing at the the concept of some of the coaches that we all think about potentially trying to uh, acquire crypto. Um, all I'm hearing from this is that there will be a recruiting Silk Road in the future. Uh, Jeff Perot asks, I really hope I pronounced that right, uh, does the existence of Huddle hurt a low P5 like Syracuse because of the, av- the availability of tape to every... T- Jesus. Uh, so that it makes gems easier for bigger schools to find. Basically, does the proliferation of tape, everybody having tape on every player, does that make it easier for gems to find to be found? I actually think the flip side is also is is true. And I think the more interesting part of this to look into is look, it, let's pretend that the scholarship limits are 25 or 25-ish. Schools cannot take them all. Um, Alex, you covered recruiting a, a lot more kind of uh, hands-on than I have since we've worked together. But, you know, you you know about the Bama bump, right? It's when, like, a three-star recruit gets an offer from an Alabama or a Georgia or a Florida State or whoever, and then magically, you know, they, they may get a, an, an extra star or a couple extra points in the revised ranking. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy for sure. Yeah, and, yeah. and so th- it's funny because I think – the inverse of it is is the more interesting way to think. Like, where are the players that Syracuse may be able to pick off a Syracuse, the Syracuses of the world, may be able to pick off a Clemson or whoever edge-wise because now they're seeing these players. Now they're seeing, hey, this guy is somebody Clemson isn't going to look at because of his measurables or what have you, uh, but we can go get him because we've seen on Huddle or whatever that that – he can work for us and potentially be a player for us. And I think that this year in the class of 2021, this could be particularly advantageous for smaller schools because frankly, teams are going to take smaller classes this year just because of the lack of eval opportunities. Uh, you know, consider kind of the the time period that we're going through this and it's probably going to extend for a while. You know, camp season is shot. Um, you know, yeah. re- recruiting yeah. directors, recruiting directors are not even bothering to set up websites for camps that they were otherwise going to have this summer. Uh, you're potentially looking at high school football being lesser or gone in certain places this year. So there are going to just be fewer opportunities for staffs, uh, including staffs at, you know, the big schools that usually can afford to be very selective. Uh, you're going to see fewer opportunities for them to actually evaluate players. I think that it is likely that you'll see just smaller classes being taken all over and smaller classes all over in theory should mean, you know, a higher floor of talent available to the group of five. And so I think that it could be, uh, 
not, I don't want to say something to exploit, but something that uh, works out in a positive way for, for some schools in the lower half of Division One and lower half of FBS. I also wonder, you know, what happens to the transfer market in a sense of that you maybe we see teams go heavier into the transfer market because it's proven players, at least a little bit. Um, you know, that you're you're transferring for a reason, but at least there's gonna be some film on you at a college level against college competition. Um, but then again, that creates a variant like I Look, man, we've been Illinois adjusted on this podcast till we're blue in the face. But Illinois is a team that I was worried about heading into next season, 2020, because of how they really did build the thing around highly talented transfers. Um, and, you know, they basically raided USC's whole damn roster. Yep. Luke Ford from um, Georgia. Great player. Right. Tight so end, so, yeah. so what happens with that? The, the roster composition conversations to me are, are fascinating when you, you know, when you kind of strip away the human element about it and you just think about it as, you know, numbers on a roster or, or, or the composition of a team, um, you know, is this, is this a recruiting class where some of the, you talked about kind of taking less players like Clemson, what was it? Uh, 2016, I think Clemson took like 14 players. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, They're and I know Clemson selective. takes, Clemson takes small classes in general, but what other teams may decide to say, okay, we maybe have the, um, the the leeway or the latitude to kind of sit this recruiting class, not out, but I'm saying instead of taking 26, maybe we take 20 or less and then, or yeah. less, and then we can come back 10. and then we can come back in 22 and, and go gangbusters. Now there are some teams that are not going to be able to do that. Um, and potentially that can then be their gain looking at you, USC. Um, but then there are other programs who may be able to. So it's the 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 shakeup of how players uh, are going to get to wherever they are going to get to is, again, another part of the unknown. Absolutely. Uh, one Swell Foop on Twitter asked, do you think recruits in the near future may end up signing closer to home after this ep- epidemic? Uh I think it's possible. I don't think that we'll see that on like a massive scale because there are... Well, know, why not? I think one of the reasons why not is that we're going to see just smaller classes this year like we were just talking about. So, you know, even if schools do tend to stay a little closer to home, that might not manifest in as large numbers as it normally would. Um, the reason that I think it might happen to a small extent um, is just that it costs money to travel and... I think that this could be the thing that hits budgets pretty hard for reasons we've already discussed. And if you're able to knock out your recruiting, like let's say you're in Dallas or SMU and you're able to, I mean, SMU is pretty much only recruiting Texas anyway, but you know, if you're able to do your 90% of your recruiting without having to drive more than 30 minutes, then it's going to be extra enticing to do that this year because you know, despite what these schools invest in football, I, I don't think that anyone is entirely spared from a little bit of belt tightening. Yeah, I, it, obviously it's going to be a state-by-state basis. If you're a school in Florida, it is a lot easier to get what you need within the state lines. We all know that. Um, you know, you're going to have to, if you're a school in the Midwest and you're coming out to Florida and you say, you know, I, I Butch Davis told me this one time. He said, now he had some, selfish motives in saying this understood but he was like i think florida's over recruited 
Now, he is the head coach at FIU, and him being able to pick off edgewise talented players in the state of Florida is a big deal for him. But the point stands that, and we were talking about recruiting Florida in general, and it, when you're a Florida recruiter, there is pressure to come back with somebody. There's pressure to come back with a player on signing day or two or three or four because you're down there. And that means maybe you're taking swings on guys you may not otherwise have. Now, that's in a, in a regular year. Now, maybe you're a little bit more reticent to take a swing on a guy out of state because you're, you're not able to see them as much. Um, they're not able to come camp. We just talked about camp. Camp's out. There are some, t- there are some, there, when, when teams assemble their recruiting board, there is a tier of players that's like sight unseen, offer and go. But there's another tier of players where it's like, we got to see this kid. I got to see this kid in person. He's got to come camp. And if we don't have camps that, or, or we have one camp in, you know, July or whatever. And it becomes a thing where instead of like uh, the camp circuit, instead of multiple weekends where I, I can take my son to four or five different schools. I've got one weekend in July or two weekends in July. I'm I as dad who may be dealing with some financial hardships. I'm, I'm not going to be able to fly me, mom and son to wherever out of state. Maybe I've got to like the other side is true here. Maybe athletes and athletes parents are saying, eh, maybe we drive it and maybe we drive to um, you know, drive to the close schools or what have you. Um, you also may see. Like I'm thinking of uh, a friend of the podcast, Brandon Collier, who runs a recruiting service uh, out of Europe, European talent. Um, you know, there, there, he had been making serious inroads with doing tours with his European players over here. Um, you know, Penn State, I know, was in on him. Virginia was in on him. Um, Clemson hosted some guys. What happens with that? You know, is Brandon going to be bringing a ton of his uh, international recruits? So, yes, the unknown, the unknown, the unknown. Can't talk about it enough. Tons of unknown. Uh, Richard, have we talked enough about the coronavirus for the day? I believe so. We'll get back to it in, what, 30 minutes when this podcast is over? The existential dread. And it might come up again. Who's to say? We have a fun question that I want to I want to take a stab at. Uh, David Lee Goff on Twitter, tremendous Twitter name asks, why can't people admit Cam Newton, recently released by the Carolina Panthers, had the greatest season in college football history, all things considered? I love Richard. Because he didn't stay at Florida. I love, wow, okay. I love, That's why. I love this this medium for, for this discussion because this is interesting to me. Uh, I think that there are about nine different ways of answering, just even from a QB standpoint, like who was the best ever. Uh, or what was the best season ever. Uh, here's where Cam Newton, I think, did have the best season ever and you know maybe was the best college quarterback ever. He was the guy who did the most on his own to win his team anything, and it turned out to be a national championship. But if, like, if there were a football quarterback metric that were like wins above replacement in baseball, Cam Newton would have had in 2010 – the highest wins above replacement in the history of college quarterbacking or probably quarterbacking in general. Um, so you I, I, you actually have, I think you did this in like December, you kind of broke out and were like, basically there are so many quarterbacks since what, like 2005 yes. that have like the claim to being the best quarterback ever. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's worked out really interestingly to see how spread offenses have boosted quarterback numbers. I think that it's pretty impossible to argue that to argue against the point that Joe Burrow this past season was he achieved like a higher level of quarterback awesomeness just statistically. <laughs> that's our metric. Like, like that's, our, that's like banner society just, metric. Every major statistical record uh, or, or, you know, a wide kind of handful of them went to him last year. Um, obviously, that does not bake in. You know, yes, he had a Bolitnikoff winning receiver, Randy Moss's son at tight end, a tremendous running back in, in Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Joe Brady drawing up just a tremendous offense that had guys running absolutely open all the time. Yeah, all of that's true. But just like in terms of like what is the highest level of quarterbacking ever achieved, I think that, you know, without adjusting for era or anything like that, it has to be Burrow. Um, but yeah, I mean, Cam Newton was a one-man national championship. I mean, Auburn's offense had nothing of note aside from him. The defense finished, I think, 44th in SP+, uh, which is not even in the ballpark of what a national championship team's defense normally is. And there was no reason that Auburn would not have done what it did every other year in that period under Gene Chizik. Uh, I would take Cam and, Newton over Joe Burrow a hundred times out of a hundred over the, the two. If we took the two seasons in a, in a vacuum, I would take what Cam did for Auburn over what Joe did for LSU. Yeah. I think it's, to, it's totally reasonable to do it like that. And like, I, I think that you could also make different kinds of best quarterback ever and best season ever cases for, like Ty Detmer, Danny well, yeah, I, I think. Like, are you, you talking can, about? Or, or when I think of it, I'm kind of going at it from like a a value argument. Yeah, like and, I, and I think you can clear. do outstanding yeah. too and arrive at Cam being way better. I think statistically, Joe, the touchdowns, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. I think I think from both value and outstanding, I think you can make the argument for Cam and the argument that I want to make. And it's that yeah, like, you look, man, I, I'm not going to sit here and say Joe Burrow wasn't special. Lord, I'm, that's not what I'm trying to say. But I am saying there are other quarterbacks, because of the cast of characters around him, I would argue that maybe there were other quarterbacks who could have been the trigger man of that team and gotten near where it was. Yeah, I think um, that's fair. Like, but there's nobody who could have, there is nobody you could have put in Cam Newton's helmet in 2010 that would have brought them to anywhere near where they got. Uh, yeah, to, to get that Auburn team to an undefeated national championship is... I agree, yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I think part of the fun is that there are a million ways you could argue this. I think that just in terms of individual power, impressiveness for the situation, I think it's got to be Cam. I, I'd also hear if you want to make you know a, an argument tailored around just like big game performance, if you wanted to go Deshaun Watson or Vince Young, um, just looking at guys since college football has had like a defined national championship game, you could certainly do that. If you wanted to just like. Get an old guy in there. You could take Davey O'Brien if you wanted to make sure that you were, <laughs> if you wanted to make sure that you were repping like QBs for those old option offenses. You probably pick Tommy Frazier. Uh, you might even try Keenan Reynolds. And I think that the big one that does not get nearly enough spe- uh, respect because he was not playing in FBS or one A at the time uh, was Steve McNair, uh, who just like relative to his overall environment is definitely i think the biggest outlier qb of all time so lots of fun ways you can answer that and i think that if anyone wants to say that cam newton had the greatest season in cfb history i think that it is hard to dispute i think he did at mike black sports uh you think oregon wins a national title by 2025 alex do you 
No, although I'm going back and forth a bit on this. Uh, And I wrote something recently on on our website that I would have Oregon as the next team to win its first title of the millennium, and that would also be its first ever. I think that there are reasons for that, and I I know that you disagree with me on this, and I'll let you handle that. My problem is that their advantages when they were at their best, you know, the spread offense that was pretty innovative at the time, cool uniforms to help recruiting, great facilities – those things are all now everywhere. Um, so those are advantages gone. But there is one big advantage that they still have. Uh, I, I think that the... I, I think we I think we have a fallacy when we talk about Oregon. And I think you just nailed it. Like, you just did it. I think we still talk about Oregon in the guise and, and under the, like, under the framework of 2010. Like it's it's not that you're right in a sense of the uniforms and the swag and all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, it's they're not really trying to be like they're not. I don't think Oregon is chasing that ghost anymore. They were with Mark Helfrich, but it's pretty clear that Mario is not trying to chase that ghost. Um, And I also think when we talk about the framework that Oregon succeeded in, um, it is it is. Yes, it had so much to do with Chip, and that Chip was, in 2010-2011, a schematic genius and and was bringing something to the forefront that no one was able to stop, really. Oregon's not chasing that blueprint uh, on the field, but the other thing that we don't talk about is the Pac-12 that Oregon was able to dominate. And we've talked about on this show the um, the the conditions that a Colorado would need to win the Pac-12 South. And you need both LA schools to be bad. You need one of the Arizona schools to not be very good, all that kind of stuff. It is, that is less apropos for Oregon, but it still matters. Your path still needs to be a little bit softer than it otherwise would be um, in, in, an, in a normal-ish Pac-12 year where USC is good, UCLA is at least you know, eight or nine wins or something like that. Um, Oregon has that soft pack 12 now. And because of the way Oregon's recruiting, the way I think Oregon can boot it up, I absolutely, ha- I have no uh, qualms, no inhibitions about saying that Oregon will win a national championship by 2025. Um, so can't it's wait on the record, to, folks. Cannot wait for somebody to record that and throw that back at me in uh, in 2025. The playoff is the thing, the factor, the the factor, the extenuating circumstance, or the variable that makes it tougher. It is going sure. to, it is just literally tougher because you have to play another game against the most elite teams in the sport. This is the Oklahoma problem as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 not just a national championship game, one national championship game. You you have to play two now. And if we go all the way to 2025 with this, then there could be a couple extra games that you are required to win in the college football playoff. But we will see about that. Uh, Jason Krogman asked, what's the floor and the ceiling on the plucky underdogs from the Big Ten, the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers? Oh, I think Minnesota fans are acquainted with the floor. The floor the floor is low, so we can all agree that the floor is low. What's the ceiling? The ceiling is the Rose Bowl. I mean, it, the, there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. I mean, you can go and just get dump trucked by Ohio State and still go to the Rose Bowl. Yeah, and I would say that in 2020 specifically, uh, the way that that sets up is tough because I believe the Rose Bowl is back to being a playoff 
Bowl this year. Oh, is it? Um, yeah, okay. I believe so. So let's. This so is probably not because, this year. <laughs> and this is tough because you have Tanner Morgan back. You have Rashad Bateman back. Uh, they did lose. Uh, I think their offensive coordinator to Penn State. Uh, to Penn State, excuse me, and, and that's an issue. But they lose Winfield from the um, secondary. They lose and Winfield I, from the secondary. Yeah. They lost Tyler Johnson, a receiver who's great. Um, so we'll see what the depth chart looks like. But it's unfortunate that let's say they go ten and two, and that's enough to get to Indy, and then Ohio State, you know, does them as you would expect, it's unfortunate that the Rose Bowl would not be an option this year um, because this appears to be another up year for Minnesota. We will see. Um, and obviously, there's still value in going to you know another New Year's Six Bowl, but I think that it really sucks for them uh, that if I have that right, because yeah, the 2017 season had the Ro- is the Rose and Sugar, so it'll be back around in 2020. Um, that sucks for Minnesota that if that were to happen this year. Um, I mean, that's that's tough. I mean, it's, Minnesota it's, remains shut out from Rose Bowl from what? What is it? Fifty years? For a long time since since that that time in what the nineteen sixties was it? It's yeah, been they've 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 had a long drought. They had an opportunity, I think, in sixty or sixty one against Wisconsin to get there and didn't go well. And then they had another such opportunity last year against Wisconsin and didn't go well. Um, but I think that the ceiling is the Rose Bowl, probably not this year, but in future years, absolutely. Uh, Parker at Stats of War asks you, Richard, to convince them that Gary Patterson hasn't lost it and TCU will, in fact, get one more New Year's Bowl run before GP rides off into the sunset. Thoughts? I mean, they have to fix the offense. There's no, like, yeah. you have to fix the offense. You have to fix the offense to compete in that league. Um, you know, I they had some offensive staff uh, turnover earlier this season, or this season, um, earlier this year, literal calendar year. Um, so they are getting that fixed. But, you know, the S&P offensive rating there has not been good the last two years. Um, and that is going to be a problem. Now, the other hand is... When we talk about the defense, I have mentioned on this show time and time again that I think we need to recalibrate what we think is good defense, like from a a 30,000 foot level at the sport. Um, So we know that Gary is a really, really good defensive mind. Um, And so what is it what is it that TCU's defense needs to be in order to carry a TCU to the uh to the Big 12 championship game even. That's that's what we're really asking for. Yeah. We're asking for what are the conditions that get TCU to a Big 12 championship game. Um, and that is, I, I don't know. I, I don't really know particularly with Oklahoma doing what they're doing and Texas. <laughs> I am. It's, it's tough that it hasn't happened for them in this extended period of Texas downness, uh, which right, we, right. Are, we are not here to speculate about when that will end, but I would assume that at some point for at least some period of time, it will end. And when that happens, that will be very bad for your TCUs, your Baylors, your Oklahoma States. And it, I mean, I maybe, maybe the in-state recruiting uh, really hurts a TCU. Now, if Texas isn't going anywhere outside of Texas uh, and getting everybody you want inside Texas, same with A&M, obviously in a different league, but same with A&M as a heavyweight in that state, uh, maybe that is is harming you as a TCU trying to get the players that you may want. Uh, but how many, how old is Gary? I don't know. That That's going to make you good. Probably about, probably about 60. Let's, let's guess because we are sitting at a computer right now. We're going to search uh, it. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess 63. I had, it, I, had it, I had it on the button, baby. He's 60. He is young. Yeah. 
He's younger than I thought. All right. Yeah. So maybe he's got, maybe he's a little long in the tooth. I, okay. Yeah, he's still right. got some time left. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder from, I don't know. I, and this is me just openly speculating at what point, um, at what point does this become a, a, a messy divorce? Mm, like how yeah. much, how, yeah. how much leeway has Gary built up? How many treasures in heaven has Gary stored up? Uh, to whether if they continue to kind of slide, how far can they slide? How long can they slide before they before he turns it back around or can turn it back around? I don't know. I mean, when he's he's the Godfather there. Let me put a modified question to you. Let's pretend that the Big Twelve does not dissolve in four years when its grants of rights expires. Let's pretend that there the Big Twelve continues to exist as it does now for ten more years. Yes or no, Gary Patterson makes another Big 12 championship game or makes a Big 12 championship game. I got to say yes there. I got I the the if if the if it's a binary, I got to go yes. Okay. It's interesting. I th- I think that I might go yes, but I think that I'm 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 not confident about it, but I might. Consider, I'd, have, I'd have to think I, about it. I, I'm thinking landscape wise. Now we know what Texas and and, and Oklahoma are going to be. Um, that you know, how long is Mike Gundy going to be at Oklahoma State? That's one of the things that I'm thinking. Um, is sure. Baylor going to go back into like tailspin, not really able to figure it out without the resources, um, all that kind of stuff? Uh, Iowa State, what happens when Matt Campbell leaves? Uh, Kansas mm-hmm. State. Can Kansas State keep it up? Kansas does does less ever get it rolling? There it is, Kansas. Of course, the, those are. I'm kind of kind of thinking about the next four, five, six years of the Big Twelve and thinking how a TCU can kind of sneak back in there. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to think about who would be the next Big Twelve champion not named Oklahoma or Texas. And I guess Baylor would be at this point the strongest answer. But wow, it gets it's it's tough with. Tough without Matt Rule. Uh, anyway, that may be a, a topic for another time. Uh, Joey of for, uh, from the Rumble Seat uh, has a change my opinion prompt, Richard. If Syracuse misses a bowl game this year, they will fire Dino Babers, but the lack of success in that marriage is more of a Syracuse problem than a Babers problem. Tell him he's wrong. I, I think he's wrong, but I do also... I got questions about what Syracuse wants to do institutionally because look, Jim Beheim, that basketball team is sliding. And if you're like, what I'm saying is you may be able to get some cover because of what the basketball team is or isn't doing. Um, maybe you can kind of slide under the radar there. If you're Dino, um, I don't think the scheme is like Godfrey thinks that the scheme has kind of run its course, that kind of veer and shoot uh, what Baylor was doing really well with like RG3 and, and Corey Coleman and those guys. Um, I, I, Godfrey kind of thinks that may have run its course. I disagree. Um, I think the the tougher thing there is you're playing college football in Canada. It, More or less, yeah. There's no like, yeah. ain't no other way to put it. You're really, really far away. Um, you know, you're on a hard side of that league, the hardest side of that league. Um, and that league hadn't even booted itself up yet in a sense of Florida state. Like that, that, it, that league has a sleeping giant in it right now. Um, and tough. Louisville's even Louisville hasn't, you know, for, for his tenure, there hasn't even really been a huge threat. And that seems like it's probably changing. What happens if Dave Dorn leaves and somebody gets NC state cooking, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, 
hard uh, to see the path forward if they don't get what they need at the quarterback position. Um, and I don't now know that they, they might, they might get what they need. I think that Tommy DeVito, who played, you know, obviously played last year. Well, they was, lo- I mean, they loved was, DeVito. DeVito he was, was he was right. He was a really big time recruit, probably their biggest big time quarterback recruit in a while. I guess this would be his fourth year on campus now, or maybe his third. I mean, if it's going to happen, I think that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now. So they'll get an idea. It better have. Now, look, you look back at the at the successful season a few years ago. Um, they got the breaks. You need breaks sometimes. Illinois mm-hmm. got the breaks last season. You need yep. breaks sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, we will see. But I, to, to literally answer the question, um, I, I do not think they'll fire Babers this year. Uh, Richard Steve Gherkin asks, what actually goes down during a recruiting visit? Obviously, each school does its own thing. We know there are tours, games, photo shoots, etc. He assumes that post-game parties are guaranteed as well. But what else? And on that same track, what happens when a coach makes an in-home? I, I think the, the in-homes are the in-homes are a lot more boring than you think. Um, I, they're just I mean, they're really just in-home visits. They seem pretty boring. Yeah, <laughs> like the the real the real kind of interesting thing about the in-home is that basically this is kind of one of the your head coach's first and bet not first but at least probably your head coach's best swing. So you've got to have him primed and prepped and ready to go as an assistant. You've got to give him all the things he needs to come in here and potentially close this young man. Um, that kind of stuff. That's kind of the more the, the intrigue around. The in-home visits. Now, the campus visits are a different story. The campus visits are also, I'm not going to say they're 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 normal, because on one end they are. On one end, they are just like any college visit that you or your child may go on in the future. They show you the what what major program do you want? Oh, we're gonna go by that school. We're gonna take you by you know, whatever monument we have on campus and we're going to show you the stadium and we're going to put your name up in lights on the video board and all that sort of stuff. The more interesting part is the official visits when you get to go hang out with a player on the team. That is when things can get um, very interesting and I will leave it at that. We can leave it at that for sure. Uh, AJ Lansdale asks, how far is Oklahoma from realistically winning a playoff game? And will Alex Grinch be able to get that defense where it needs to be? Or is it a Big 12 problem? Uh, I think Oklahoma is perfectly close to winning a playoff game because they are they're quite literally 60 minutes away. They're, they're there. And even like, you know, you look obviously at, at what happened to them last year against LSU and to a lesser extent a couple of years ago against Alabama. And it's true. They weren't close to winning either of those games, but it does not take a lot to flip one result. Um, you can really just do it by accident, even if you're not properly prepared. They were, um, yeah. I was gonna say you like they. First of all, the Alabama result ended up a little bit closer. Remember, yeah. that game was a little bit closer than the experts thought. Oklahoma um, was 15 minutes late to show up to that game, and if that if they had showed up on time, then it would have probably been a one score game. But yeah, you know they they, they got didn't. worked by the eventual national champion Clemson team a few years ago. It's, you know, you you can't hide in these playoff games and you draw really, really good teams. Now, they ran into a historical buzzsaw this year. Ain't no doubt about it. Um, you know, you may not get that every year, but Oklahoma can get the job done. I'm not going to sit here and say they can't. And I would say, AJ, this this might hurt, but 
I think that in 2017, if Lincoln Riley calls a more aggressive game, I think they beat Georgia. And then Ooh. I think, and I think, and I think if they tell them about it, and you know, th- this might sound more controversial than I think it really is, but uh, I think they'd have had an excellent chance to beat Alabama in Atlanta uh, had that happened. They, obviously, they weren't as close the next year against Alabama, but um, Oklahoma's defense was considerably better uh, in 2017. And I think that was a national championship caliber team that didn't quite get it done and, and could have. Um, and since I'm mentioning the defense, you said, well, Alex Grinch get the defense where it needs to be, or is it a big 12 problem? I do think that he can get the defense where it needs to be. If where it needs to be is like in the thirties, um, you know, we, where are they we at S and P? I know I'm putting you against on the spot. Again. I, I don't remember where they came in last year on the, I think probably somewhere in the thirties or forties or maybe, maybe the high twenties. Um, but it was different. Google. It was different than their, you know, previous residents at the end of the Mike Stoops run down in like the eighties. Um, you know, if you have the best offense in college football every year, which Oklahoma right now does, um, I don't think that you need to get a top 15 or top 20 defense to have a real, you know, serious shot. And, you know, I'd also use this space to say that, I don't think Big 12 defenses are naturally bad. I just think the Big 12 figured out spread offenses a little bit before everybody else and it's taken some time to catch up. Um, So I'm a believer. And I think that, you know, there's no reason to think that that Oklahoma does not have many more playoffs in their future and that at some point they might not even win a game in one of those playoffs. They were uh, Oklahoma's 48th in S&P this season. Not Um, bad. Not good, but not bad. It's not good, but it's not bad. LSU is 20th. We know what I think about LSU and LSU's defense. They finished the season a lot better than they started. Um, so, yeah, that's that is that's going to be the issue. It, I don't know if it's a Big 12 thing as much. I think it is a Big 12 thing, and it is an Oklahoma thing. I think when we talk about – we like, we talk about Clemson in the – we talk about Clemson in the in the the context of the ACC. We talk about Oklahoma in the context of the Big Twelve and Oregon in the context of the Pac twelve. We just did it. But my thing is like these teams are so good that they rise above the league. Their issues are both one and the same with the league, but also their own because they are so good, talented, recruit so well that they you know they they rise above those issues. I don't think it's a Big Twelve issue when we talk about Oklahoma's defense. I think it's an Oklahoma issue. Um, Yes. All right. Next question. Sorry, I had to pull back to Mashit. Uh at at Wacky Wico. Uh at Wacky Wico asks Virginia Tech had scheduled stupidly uh with ECU over the hurricane. Uh they had a, a spat over that deal. Fans are now calling for removal of Liberty from Virginia Tech's schedule due to Falwell being so out there. Uh that's putting it nicely. Uh what are your favorite weird reasons for having for games being canceled? Well, Richard, you can take this one, so I don't say anything that gets me in trouble on this podcast. (laughs) Um, I think the there was a few years ago, not a few years ago. This was back in the '60s. USC got too cold uh, and told Notre Dame they didn't want to go to Indiana in November to play Notre Dame, which yeah, yeah, fair. so there's some of that stuff. We got a lot of this in college football, some kind of silly reasons for not wanting to play each other. We have uh, uh, Miami and, oh, you're, this is your this is a fan favorite from you, right? The Miami-Arkansas State force majeure issue. Oh, oh, right. That, that got, and I'm not even sure if that's been resolved yet. It might still be working its way through the Arkansas court system. Yeah, Arkansas State was not happy with Miami over, or was it Miami not being happy with Arkansas State? 
I think it was I think it was Arkansas State saying you can come, you can play, we'll move a game around, we'll do whatever we need to do. Uh, oh, to right. Do it. And Miami was like, no, we're not traveling like, to Hurricane. No, pretty we're pretty not reason, going to pretty re- pretty reasonable uh, standpoint uh, for Miami there, in my opinion. But yeah, Miami was like, no, we're not going to Jonesboro, Arkansas. Absolutely not. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that one of the things that is uh, hardest to explain about college football to people who do not follow it is, you know, yeah, these people are fighting and and basically calling each other wimps because one of them did not want to travel through a hurricane uh, to play a a non-conference football game. Um, And yeah, like it's gotten very personal. They think they're like very weak-willed individuals on the other side. Uh, Bizarre, bizarre sport that we have here, but that's part of why we love it. Uh, Richard, next question here comes from at the Willard years of the esteemed Hailgate at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, now that the ACC coastal, you gotta cycle, hold on. You gotta you gotta read this question in the accent. Do oh fine, we do have to do this in the accent. Well, uh, now that the ACC coastal cycle of champs is uh, is complete. Do we start anew, or uh, has the uh, the circle been broken? Ask BAPN. Yeah, I I can, I, don't, I slip into that just no. That is again. that is grating. Um, but as we know, I think the ACC coastal has been won by seven different schools the last seven years. Um, so are we going to see continued parity atop that division or is somebody primed to take over? What do you think? Uh, speaking of Miami, uh, the conference that was jiggered to put them in the conference championship game every year, they've only won it outright once. They've tied for the lead a second time, uh, when they couldn't go to the conference championship game. Miami's got to prove to me that they institutionally care about football at a big time level. Like they need to, um, for a private school, they have a, that is a cousin to USC's problem. How much do you institutionally care enough about being really, really good in football? It's a little bit easier because of proximity to talent, but if the proximity to talent could get the job done, you would have gotten it done within the last 15 years more than once. Anyway, um, I, I think the two teams that are primed to like run that division, if anybody, are North Carolina and Virginia. Um, Virginia, I think, just has a really good coaching staff. I think Bronco Mendenhall is a really good coach. Um, I think they're obviously there. They just played in the conference championship game. North Carolina, I think, is the more um, is the more interesting team to look at, primarily because I think Sam Howell is really good. Is going to be really, really good. Uh, I think their defensive coaching staff is really, really good. Um, and if you talk to people in North Carolina, Mac Brown is getting it done recruiting-wise within the state. And again, we go back to our potentially you may have to become more in-state um, as this thing plays out. Yeah, I, I think that North Carolina is the team that I look at and say, if there was ever a time, the time is now to assert yourself atop that division or at least perennially in the top two for the next few years. Yeah, I, I don't entirely disagree. I still have a bit of a Virginia mental block here, um, even though everything has aligned pretty well for Virginia to maybe win a couple of Commonwealth Cups in a row. Um, it's just hard for me to fully believe that, even though Virginia Tech does not have Bud Foster anymore, uh, has a head coach who they do not seem to like and who seem to <laughs> try to leave them uh, a couple of months ago. I have, for some reason, I just have a very hard time 
Uh, it's, I mean, it's not for some reason. I think that any Virginia fan will probably agree with this reason um, in declaring them fully over the hump. But you're right that rationally it makes sense, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, I do think that you might see Pitt pull a little bit of a Michigan State impression finally now in that their recruiting has not been particularly good, but it does seem like Pat Narduzzi finally figured out his defense last year. Um, so they could piss a lot of teams off and win like, 17 to 10 games next year we'll see um and yeah georgia tech is a great wild card so we'll see um i i do think that at some point if anyone's gonna figure it out long term and run the show given that michael vick is not walking back through that door it'll probably be miami <laughs> but uh yeah what a confusing and and bizarre but delighting division you th- miami miami for me is the believe it when i see it school and I, like yeah that's virginia fair. tech is I, like i understand my bias is showing there but yeah miami is the is the i'll believe it when i see it miami t- miami's 2020 is a fascinating gamble to me too with Derek King because you bring him in and right, and right lastly and and yep and you let Jaron Williams walk um, who was going to be your quarterback for probably another two two ish years it makes some sense although man if it doesn't work out and if Derek King is not the guy then sheesh sheesh is there their QB depth going to be exactly where it's always been and that is not going to be great. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, Matt Atkinson asks, "What, what, which team do you see emerging out of the very large middle tier of the MAC? Can Sean Lewis continue to build Kent State and make them a contender?" Uh, I am not ever gonna say that Kent State can repeat any modicum of success ever. That may be the most believe it when I see it college football team in the country um you should build sean lewis a statue because right. of what he was able to do last right year. pound for pound winning a bowl game at kent state is like a top five accomplishment by any coach last year yeah it, I, had, it, it had never i'm happened. serious i'm yeah. serious build him a statue yeah, yeah um but i always bet on buffalo always bet on buffalo as long as mm-hmm. lance leipold's there always bet on buffalo i agree and i would add that while i do not think that syracuse will wind up making a coaching change uh, in the next year. If they did, I would not look very far geographically to find the next guy. Sure wouldn't. Uh, at Lolo Fenarski, if you get to start a new bowl game, who plays in it, who sponsors it, and where is it played? Bonus points for tie-in events oh. and trophies. I would, I would a, a two-part a two-part answer here. I mean, I've always wanted to have something called the Chipotle Burrito Bowl, uh, <laughs> but Chipotle, you're not getting that from me unless you give your employees paid sick leave, particularly okay. during this pandemic. Uh, so you should do that, Chipotle. If we've got any middle management types at Chipotle uh, doing this podcast, if you do that, then I will consult with you on how to get the Chipotle Burrito Bowl uh, started after this pandemic. You can where pay are we me, playing it? Though? You can pay me a retainer. Uh, we can play it anywhere. It doesn't really matter to me. But, I mean, you're obviously going to have a lot of meat in that game, so I think you want a Big Ten team. Are uh, we – if if we win the game, are we dunking salsa out of the Gatorade thing on our yes. coach? Or, or or perhaps guac. Guac. That's going to cost extra. <laughs> guac is going to cost extra. Uh, it's, that's fair. You dump salsa, uh, you can do guac, or you can do guac and queso for a real premium. Indeed. Uh, okay, at Quinn, Q underscore Brunk asks, favorite offensive and defensive schemes to watch, ask PAPN. Um, I, I, and I'm going to dovetail this with our next uh, question here. Wow, but uh, 
Tulane and Will Hall. Um, they're always pretty interesting. Willie Fritz plug. Um, on defense, what UNC is doing uh, with Jay Bateman and the zone drops and the simulated pressures because, and this ties into my next question, from Sewer Daddy is, um, ask PAPN, is there a defensive scheme that you can think of that is unique that can make a large impact in a couple years? And that's where I want to talk about North Carolina, where I want to talk about uh Dave Miranda's defense, where I want to talk about Jim Leonard's defense, where I want to talk about uh, this sort of uh, Brent, Brent Venables in his newest iteration, um, this this simulated pressure thing. Um, you even you can see NC State do it on third down, even though they didn't really do it particularly well this year. Uh, but you this this how defenses become more and more positionless to counter uh, with matchups the way offenses have become more hybrid personnel um, and able to put receivers wherever they want and able to put players wherever they want and manipulate spacing and all that kind of stuff. How do defenses counter? Um, and that with, with simulated pressures, which for the last kind of 10 years have kind of been bubbling, bubbling, bubbling the NFL really like with the Ravens, um, the Rex Ryan Ravens, you saw it in there. Um, that is where, those are some some of the most interesting things to look at as far as how defensive football is being played right now. You know, if, if we're standing up, if we're playing a two four five, and and we're standing up a lot of guys and moving guys around, movement and pressure. Those are the things that affect the run game particularly. Um, and when you start moving guys around and standing guys up, standing edge rushers up and all that kind of stuff, that's when you start to really, really screw with uh, pass rushing rules and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, you start seeing teams potentially go to, uh, like in the NFL, they're not playing any cover two anymore. It's single high. And you look at the NFL and you start looking at, obviously they're playing more man, but you start looking at that one safety uh, in the back and then just like a straight line across defense. Um, and then at the snap, guys are rotating and, and and coming and not coming and looping. And those are the kind of things that I love uh, seeing because it's just hard to to deal with as an offensive uh, line and and. Those those are the ways to kind of disrupt offenses, and and so simulated pressures is what I think the the present and future most interesting kind of things that defenses are doing is. Yeah, for sure. And we get a question as well from at Cupus Maximus: um, Is there a scheme that you think is unique and could really come into its own, make a large impact that's, in the yeah, next? Yeah, that's what years? I was like. That's what I was saying. That's what I was getting at there. Yeah, um, I am interested in just seeing if we, you know, we've talked about this before, but if we see it kind of going back to three yards in a cloud of dust, I was thinking about this when the Steelers traded for a tight end the other day after already restructuring one for the roster next year, you know, are we going to get back to a point where Nichols will suddenly be out of Vogue again? And I don't really know, but Um, I am, uh, I'm interested to see whether or not it happens. We talk about extremes and I I asked the coach one time, I was like, what's next? And he was like, if I had the horses, I would run I formation at tempo. And I think I've said that before on this podcast, but just the concept of that is really funny to me. Like I formation gap running scheme under center three yards cloud of dust type stuff. Um, remember inside zone the stuff that 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 teams are doing right now that stuff's physical. That stuff's real physical. Um, and so if we if we continue to potentially see the counter of all these kind of hybrid defensive players or at least skinnier defensive players being offenses saying like 
let's condense our formations a lot more. I mean, look at what LSU did this season. LSU did a lot of condensed formation type stuff. If offenses start saying, let's condense stuff even more, um, and, and, and start to exploit inefficiencies of just like physical inefficiencies that we're seeing in defenses. That can be fun to watch in the future as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, Richard at the Queso asks us, given the looming financial difficulties, and we are, I guess, going to kind of sway uh, back into coronavirus for a second, but I tr- trust me, there's a payoff. Given these financial difficulties uh, and the decline of the Pac-12 specifically, do you see a likely scenario where the Big 12 raids a Power 5 conference when its group of rights expires? That's in 2024. Any hope of a dream scenario uh, where a non-A&M departed school comes home? Realignment, baby. Glad we got this question. Um, It is March. So this one is like, obviously nobody knows anything, but I see the opposite as a little more likely in the Pac-12, Big Ten, or SEC poaching somebody, trying to take advantage of the Big 12's grant of rights expiring. Um, I think that most of our audience is nerdy enough that you'll be familiar with that concept, but um, what that means, basically, I believe it's in the summer of 2024, uh, every school in the Big 12's media rights are no longer tied to the Big 12. Um, so effectively, you know what that's done for years is prevent anyone from leaving the conference unless they uh, would be fine just doing without TV money for sports, which they're not going to do. Um, the reason I do well, not definitely think, not going to do it now. <laughs> the reason they're definitely not going to do it now. The reason that I don't think uh, the Big 12 would be poaching a Power Five school. Um, is more that and I just think the Big 12 is going to be the one that has the instability because of the, you know, expiry of the grant of rights. I think that like, is it possible that like a Nebraska could get sick of the Big 10 uh, and maybe want to come home? Sure. But remember, there were some very hurt feelings between Nebraska and the Big 12 uh, when they left. And it was, I don't think ever like an awesome relationship going back to when that conference formed and they didn't let Nebraska keep Prop 48, um, who they'd used to be awesome for decades. So you know, who who would be the big get, you know, would a Missouri maybe want to come back? I don't really think so. I'm not sure. I, mean, what I don't think anybody, I don't think either of the SEC like, schools are giving up that money. Right. A&M's, Particularly yeah, now that, right. C, that ESPN's getting the deal. And, and it would, A&M would kind of be coming back with its tail between its legs. Like, oh no. And I don't think they're going to do that. That's no, I was going to say A&M, A&M's. Doesn't really seem like their spot. Does, does not seem like their style to me. The supremacy of A&M leaving for the greener grass is, is, the like that's their thing it's all right texas you went and got a network great we went to the greener grass the greener pastures yeah so i just don't i mean of of the schools that have left i don't really see any natural return circumstances so you know who else would the big 12 go and get like you know is there anyone in the pac-12 who would view the big 12 as a more desirable destination like maybe one of the arizona schools doesn't seem all that likely to me uh Seems like, I mean, of course, geography is only a part of this equation, but... um, What about like Colorado and Utah? Colorado and Utah are interesting. Actually, and you're right, those are better potential options than the Arizona schools, but probably still not, right? I mean, Colorado is the only one that would make a bit of sense, but like I just said, Nebraska is not coming back. Is Colorado going to do that without Nebraska? Probably not, right? I mean, Colorado, I mean, Colorado kind of spoke that rivalry into existence. And like, that was <laughs> obviously a, if Nebraska came back, maybe Colorado would be like, Hey, yeah, this is, this is fun. Like we're at a pretty big financial disadvantage in the PAC 12. Maybe we'd like to come and, and play against Colorado again every year. Forget but, about, forget about the money you know. for a second is, do, do you think 
who do you think is is worse off from leaving Colorado or Nebraska? Just put put money aside. I'm talking about like competitively football wise. Colorado probably slightly worse off, slightly only because Nebraska is in the Big Ten West. Is in the uh, and and I think the Big Ten West will eternally be the easier Big Ten division, <laughs> whereas the Pac-12 South is only easier for as long as USC flounders. Um, so I think Nebraska is in a little tougher spot because of it. But I guess by the same token, Nebraska has less risk because Nebraska is going to sell at that stadium every week, uh, <clears throat> you know, or or close enough. Um, though I guess they're still caught on a sell it every week, um, and they're going to have massive fan support no matter where they are. So perhaps Colorado a bit more exposure uh, to the extent that it's been a bad idea. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Uh, Okay. Uh, Jay Skipworth asks, I love the triple option as much as anyone. I am curious what that would give any program in the FBS uh, as far as an advantage. I'm talking the Academy, like offensive style, like flex bone, flex bone. Yeah. I don't think that it gives anyone an advantage, but it conceivably does cut into a disadvantage. The ways that it, uh, does that I think are twofold. Like for one thing, you force teams to play against something that they do not spend most of the year practicing against. And we just so, talked about that impact yeah. early in the podcast. It's a big thing. Uh, we've talked about this before, you know, with Jeff Munkin, Kenny Amatololo. Like it's something that uh, I think every triple option coach swears by is that you kind of catch people by surprise. Um, or at least catch them a little bit unsupre- uh, unprepared, uh, even when they know what's coming because they're just not totally used to it. Uh, and the other thing it does is it just shortens the game. And when we saw this, I think maybe the best example of this was a couple of years ago when Army took Oklahoma to overtime in Norman, uh, despite Oklahoma averaging like eight or 10 yards of play with Kyler Murray at his peak because Oklahoma just couldn't get on the field. Um, because every army drive, even the ones that were not ending in touchdowns was taking six, seven minutes off the clock. I Um, I think the, the option we talk about the option, I think as far as capping a ceiling a lot of time, but the other thing is the option is also, and you hit on a little bit, but the option also raises your floor. Um, this is Georgia tech and every year with Paul Johnson. And that is also playing Georgia every single season, losing mm -hmm. every single season. You ready? All right. 9, 10, 6, 8, 7, 7, 11, 3, 9, 5, 7. That's, that's a decade of Georgia Tech football from a wins perspective with a loss baked into Georgia yeah. every year. And what's that, 7 and 5 average, probably something like that? It was never say? bad. You'll take, it was never I mean, bad. A lot of places would take that. Um, a lot of places should take that and wouldn't. It was never bad. Yeah. I'll tell you that. I mean, I went to the University of Maryland and Maryland has this thing in its head that, you know, we're going to recruit well because there's a lot of talent in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. And we're going to somehow magically compete with Penn State and Michigan and Ohio State. No, no, we're not like we're not going to do that. (laughs) Like, you know, we would it be advantageous to try to, like, just mess with those teams very badly and, you know, maybe pick off one of them every two years and go six and six, seven and five by using some limber offensive linemen, you know, sure. I Like, who am I to tell you not to do that? But uh, that actually segues me into another question, Richard. We were asked, and I'm, I'm sorry because I didn't write down who, who asked this question, but um, which player from your school's rival did you hate love watching the most? Guy you had to, you know, you had to admit he was incredible, even if you didn't like him. 
the like kind of the under the radar guy that I think of first is Eric Berry. Eric Berry was so awesome at Tennessee. Um, that's just a, yeah. that's just kind of a, a, a guy who's I think a little less obvious, uh, but really like jumps to mind when I think about it. Yeah, and Maryland has no football rival, but uh, I'll claim Pitt back for this one and say Pat White, um, who I think everyone agrees is uh, one of the most incredible college football players we've had this whole century. Um, Richard at UF Mark asks, why does nobody, and I bet you're going to have some thoughts about this one. I sure do. Why does no one except former linemen give linemen enough credit for what happens on any given non-sack, non-TFL play? Um, is it a lack of time touching the ball, a lack of understanding of what is going on? Both, neither. Uh, tell us about it, Richard. Tell us why linemen are underappreciated. I, I think it's just a lack of th- the position is so technical in a way that in in a way that receiver and, and and DB and all that kind of stuff like the position is much more technical than those just in my opinion um there's a barrier to entry to understanding what they can do because they don't touch the ball um there is also an uh, an unquantified like if offensive linemen a lot of them are doing their job right on a pass play you know nothing happens to the quarterback like that's literally the point. <laughs> um, uh, there, it's also unquantifiable. It's it's for offensive linemen at least. It is truly unquantifiable. Um, really, what they do now. You can talk about not unquantifiable, but I should I should say hard to quantify in college football. You can do it a little bit the NFL, Pro Football Focus, which I know. I know, but Pro Football Focus has kind of taken, attempted to do this with their grading system. And I, I know ESPN, for the flip side, has like pass rush, pass rush win rate. NFL Next Gen Stats um, can tell you how uh, much time it takes for a defensive lineman to get a sack. But even sacks, when we talk about sacks in general, sacks are assisted a lot of the time. It is, it's not often, not it's not all the time, I should say, that a defensive end just whips a tackle and gets a sack. It happens, but a lot of the time they are aided because potentially their defensive tackle pushed the center into the quarterback's lap and the quarterback couldn't step up and evade that oncoming edge rusher. There is a way that both trenches work together in sync more than one guy doing his job um, that makes the position so unique, that makes when these guys do work together so seamless and so cool to watch when you really look at it. I I would argue on any given run play, I would argue you should watch the offensive line. When When the running back breaks... Uh, the line of scrimmage, that's when you should potentially start caring about it. But the offensive line is the only thing that's on the screen every single play for most of the play, particularly if it's a run. Um, That's who you should be paying attention to. Watch how they work. Uh, Watch how these guys move. They are athletes, particularly at the second level. Uh, It is, it's really cool to watch linemen get the job done. And, And it's why I consider... Like on the defensive line, it's why I consider Nose, One Tech, Zero Tech, those guys the most important guys on the defense because particularly stopping the run really starts and ends with those guys. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, Richard, you want to talk about some things that are not strictly football, football adjacent things, life adjacent things? You want to do it? All right. Um, We got a couple of questions about uh, rescheduling things and about you know, 
dates and conflicts that have been brought about by all this. Jokastrength asked us, told us that they're punning a wedding by a full year, just like changing the date on this wedding, even though it's a full year away, and asks, can they use the same save the dates, but with a line through the date and a new date handwritten? What yeah, do you think? those shits are expensive. They are expensive, but you know what? You know what's out there right now, and I saw this online like yesterday. There are change the date e-cards. They are called change the dates, and they are free, or at least free with your paid subscription. The wedding industrial complex in this country is incredible. Right. It's. I mean, I feel like wedding planners are somehow going to find a way to get rich off of all this, and I don't know how, but they're going venues? to do it. Oh, venues who are like Actually, secure. Secu- oh, yeah, if yeah, I'm no, a venue, right, yeah. I'm like, why don't you give me a deposit to secure a 2021 date? Just yeah. in case. And you're not getting back what you gave me for all of those arrangements for your 2020 date either. Way It's the way to live if you can. Uh, Robert Baker asks, how important is flexibility for standing in your work from home situation? Uh, and what's one piece of work from home minutiae that you recommend? Alex, you're, his, a big, his, you're the yeah. work from home guy. I... I hate working from home. This is driving yeah. me crazy. So I, I was forged in the fires of working from home uh, just like during college when I worked here part time and, and for a year a little bit after college. Um, I fulfilled the stereotype of blogging about football from my parents' basement. Um, I think standing is really important, at least having somewhere where you can stand and work. Um, for that reason, I spend a lot of time at the kitchen counter. Uh, I live in a pretty small place now because I live in D.C., um, you're in New York, so you know a lot about living in a small place uh, that you spend too much money on. Uh, but yeah, it's really important to stand. I think the, the 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 problem is that if you sit on like a couch and you work at a coffee table, your lower back is going to get real mad at you real soon. Uh, so finding a place to stand, uh, and I think keeping the TV off helps me a lot. I don't. I mean, I think we're we're living in a in a golden era of work from home advice the last few weeks, but. Uh, I do not benefit from having the TV on during work. I used to find it to be nice background music, but now I think it would just be distracting. So um, I like Spotify, listen to music, and just go. What about you? Anything? You, I like. I am still. I mean, you're, you're newer to, to this. Yeah, I'm. I'm still trying to get my rhythm back. I am not a big fan um, of the work from home life. I for me, it's honestly, it's getting out of bed. I, it's I gotta get out of bed. I am like I'm not a morning person anyway. Um, I'm really really bad about waking up in the morning on a regular morning. So getting out of bed, I think, is kind of the biggest um, challenge there and kind of the hardest thing for me. I think once I kind of once I'm out of bed, I'm I'm good. You know what I mean? Um, once I'm out of bed, I'm kind of ready to rock. Um, you know, I'm ready to kind of attack the day. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's making sure you're out of bed. Um, I'm experimenting with kind of the clothes situation. Um, not as, not in the sense of not wearing clothes, but in the sense of, uh, what am I wearing? Am I going to roll sweatpants in or should I actually get dressed? Should I actually put on like some jeans or something to work from home? Cause then you feel like a fucking nerd cause you're wearing jeans in the house. I'm a big house clothes guy. So th- I'm, I'm still trying to find my rhythm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find my niche here. I do not wear like nice clothes in the house when I'm working from home or just in general. But I will say that I was really excited to go take a walk like towards a park last week and put on like 
khakis and like a nicer shirt so maybe i should i mean maybe we just have the itch for that at some point uh but we should be being very careful anytime we leave the house and maybe that includes uh wearing clothes that you're comfortable in so that you don't like you know get distracted and accidentally run and touch somebody and spread the disease who's to say uh hoover street rag asked which utensil do you use to eat mac and cheese it's a fork use Uh, a fork really no, no, no! Yes, of course. This really? is this is spawned because friend of the pod Nicole Auerbach at the Athletic eats and is evangelizing people to eat mac and cheese with a I, spoon. I think she might be right about that. Nicole, if you still lived in New York, I would come over and bring as many forks as possible. I people, what what mac and cheese are y'all eating? I I mean. I think that I want my mac and cheese to kind of be a little bit hard on the outside and then immediately give way to like this creamy goodness on the inside. Yeah, but how um, are you getting more than like two noodles on the spoon if you're using a spoon? I mean, you use like a big spoon. Like you might use like, you know, I, I, I just do not think that it's actually that hard. I mean, I I have a mac and cheese that I go to now and I'm probably going to make it this week. Um, it's a kind of a modified recipe that I took from the New York Times, add a bunch of cheese, add some onions, etc. And it kind of gives you like this baked hard shell, but the spoon's like strong enough to get through that. And then you can kind of scoop out the cream and it doesn't fall through the, because if it's creamy, then it's going to fall through the tongs on the fork. No, no, that's not true. That's why you use it. If you got a good capitavi noodle, you get the noodle is going to stick. Well, I'm using, I'm using elbows. I'm using elbows, but okay. We can, I think that this is one that we can agree to disagree on. I do not think that this is, I don't think that this is tantamount to like the eating pizza with a fork debate. I think that there are multiple ways that could be fine to do this. People are truly Uh, unbelievable. Anyway, Richard Colton at Florida Georgia Line Sucks asked, uh, (laughs) what are your thoughts on banana pudding? And it's funny that that is Colton's Twitter name because when we were in Nashville, uh, and I think we were actually meeting very close to where Florida Georgia Line records. Uh, we went to lunch one day at a place called uh, Peg Leg Porker. Um, Peg Leg Porker is not a sponsor of this podcast, and uh, I am I have no one has put me up to saying this, but you got me banana pudding when we were at lunch at Peg Leg Porker, um, and I had this banana pudding, and I have been dying to have banana pudding again. I don't think I'd ever had it before. Uh, incredible food. My thoughts on it are that it's great, and that if you are in Nashville. Um, and that place is doing takeout right now. You should probably get some from there. One day uh, you'll come over and I'll make you my mother's banana pudding. Um, no, do not ask for the recipe. Anybody listening to this podcast, but just understand that it is better than whatever banana pudding you have ever had. Fair enough. Uh, friend of the pod, Zach Rao, uh, our good bud from LSU and one of the best cooks that I've ever met asks and also has a great newsletter by the way the gulf coastal that talks about cooking plugging that for him there um asks what is one food that y'all can take down an enormous amount of without even thinking about his is fried chicken richard what's yours honestly pizza i i, I can like house pizza really yeah. truly house yeah. pizza mine is mashed potatoes uh and i noticed this the other night like i cut up six pounds of mashed potatoes uh and i realized a half hour later that I had eaten at least two pounds of mashed potatoes uh, and didn't feel full, had no idea what happened. Bizarre circumstance. Um, Billy Gamilla, another LSU friend of ours, longtime blogger and the Valley Shook, great guy, uh, asked, what is your ranking of the tailgate food staples? He did a bracket a few years ago, was looking for other opinions. I think it's weird that an LSU man would ask for my advice about this because 
I do not feel qualified to tell anybody who maintains a regular LSU tailgate uh, what they should be uh, putting in their tailgate. Uh, but I think mac and cheese is great. Some kind of meat, I am not a purist about what it is. Uh, and some kind of potato are all essential, covers all the food groups. One special well, see, you like because you you're you're considering tailgate like you want a, a full meal, right? Well, yeah. Like if, you're I, I mean, meet, if you're covering all the bases here, you want like a full meal, right? I mean, I think if we're talking about a tailgate that yeah that is being presented as like we'll have a, we're gonna have a meal at this tailgate, yeah, and that might not be every tailgate. I mean, you could you could have a perfectly fine tailgate with just like some chips and like some buffalo chicken dip, which I think is very underrated. If that's what you're going for, and that's I mean, for me, do, do what suits you. I'm not like I said, I'm not going to be a snob about this. For me, I'm I'm thinking functionally about the tailgate. I am less of like a knife and fork guy and more of the kind of like finger food variety, your burgers, yeah, obviously, yeah. burger and hot dogs, clearly. When we talk about a barbecue meat of choice, I'm a big beef guy over pork, love beef, do a brisket over a pork butt any day. Um, also for like side dishes, big with the hors d'oeuvres, um, jalapeno poppers, the, jal- the bacon wrapped jalapenos with cream cheese in the middle. Those are oh, always sure. really sure. easy to do. You can stick them on the grill. You can do them in the oven the night before or whatever before you take them to the tailgate. Um, those are kind of mine of choice. When uh, we were me. in Baton Rouge and Billy, who asked this question, had us over to his tailgate at one point that day, fed us, because they were playing in Florida, uh, fed us gator. Um, it was a gator sauce pecan, I believe. Oh, so good. And <laughs> I, so I was good. shocked. I was shocked that you went ahead and ate that gator. I, I mean, because I you, under, you understand why they were cooking it, right? Yeah. I mean, but it's like there's so own, many restaurants in Gainesville. Kid? I don't know. There's so yeah. many restaurants in Gainesville that serve gator. Right. The, ga- the gator was good. It was, was it a little gamey, we said? Like, well, yeah, that's ga- alligator. I tell alli- t- tell people that alligator tastes like chicken that's like a little bit more kind of like rubbery and chewy. Um, if, if you've never had alligator before or if you're having fried alligator, uh, it's like a it's like a smaller chicken nugget that's going to be a little bit more rubbery. It was very good. And thank you, Billy, for that uh, and and all of your great hospitality. Everyone at LSU that weekend. Uh, here's a question, Richard. And I, I another time that I did not record who wrote this, who asked this question, but what's the most underrated can or the other item in the pantry? Mine's, mine is just off the hop, Campbell's chicken noodle soup. Can do can do a lot for you. Um, can, can serve many roles. Can be used to cook in things. Very important to have around uh, get you a uh, can anchovies uh, because can oh, anchovies wow. yeah. can if you kind of either cut them up or like roll them into like a paste with like garlic or whatever it can form actually a really good really easy base for like a really quick pasta night um, you can cut up some chicken if you want but you can throw with that with like some capers or maybe some olives and stuff like that it, it is a really easy uh, base to uh, a really quick and easy pantry sauce pasta night. Okay. Oh, I, I can't say that I've ever had anchovies and I've, as you know, I have some aversion to some seafood, but I might give it a, give it a whirl. Yeah. Anchov- uh, get you the little anchovy yeah. filet that comes in the, in the little tin, get it in oil. And it, for, if you don't like anchovies, it's fine. Cause you can get it. They're so thin that they kind of basically liquefy in the pan when you, when you cut them up. And yeah. Down. Also to that point about oil, has there ever been a more important time to have olive oil on hand than right now? Well, yeah, but you got to make sure it's fresh because olive oil goes bad. Huh? Yeah. yeah olive, oil, olive oil spoils. Now, it doesn't spoil in like three weeks, but olive oil does spoil. Um, so make sure it's good. Make sure it's fresh. Um, extra virgin has a lower smoke point. 
you may not want to cook stuff in like fry stuff in extra version because it's going to smoke and get your kitchen all crazy um, uh, a little bit quicker than regular olive oil. But yes, olive oil and essential. A good tip for the people. Uh, Richard Josiah Minks asked, what is your go-to adult beverage during these trying times? I'm not going to lie. I am like clean living right now. I, I don't have, I, I ran out of beer earlier, um, earlier in the quarantine. I have been trying to cut back on spending money as much as possible, given my current uh, flux living situation. So because of that, I have not been uh, spending on the pleasantries like the beers, etc. cetera. Uh, I got yeah. some liquor in the liquor cabinet that can tide me over, do a cocktail here and there. But honestly, have been living fairly clean over the last couple of weeks. I actually decided by total coincidence to do a sober month of March with no drinking whatsoever. I did this before it was clear that this month was going to become the year that it has. But uh, from that timing perspective, it worked out pretty well. And uh, I strongly recommend that if you ever are, you know, feeling like you can do it, go a few weeks without drinking. I just feel like I've, you know, probably dropped a few pounds and felt a little clearer, been running a little faster miles. Um, But I should acknowledge that come April 1st, uh, gin and tonics will be making a swift return to my rotation. If you, um, you know, if you want to do quick, easy cocktails to take the edge off a little bit once you get the kids to bed, um, do Manhattan, get you some vermouth, do a quick Manhattan bourbon and vermouth, uh, boil some simple syrup with some sugar, boil some sugar with some water, make a simple syrup and start experimenting with like a simple syrup um, and and cocktails of that nature. Have some fun with it. But yeah, like I'm saying, I, I'm doing a little bit of that, but not a lot. You very much should. Uh, Stitch Turner asks if you have to pick one SEC East head coach to quarantine with who you got. I have Derek Mason uh, because I think that his in-home workout is going to be robust. I'm going to be shredded by the time we emerge from that quarantine. And he's also not going to bother you too much, right? Like there are certain coaches in that division who I feel like are not going to shut up and who are going to be very grating throughout that experience. But Derek Mason seems, you know, he can get very fired up, but he seems generally speaking, pretty chill guy, gets you shredded. I think that Football coaches in general is not my favorite group here, but if I had to pick one from that division, it would be him. My um, <laughs> my answer would probably surprise you. It's actually Will Muschamp. Will Muschamp, like ha- having been around Muschamp, wow. having covered Muschamp, um, <laughs> got, like his players ride for him, man. Like he's fun to kind of be around, um, all that kind of stuff. I actually would take Will Muschamp, indeed. His players do ride for him. I've always, I'm curious if you can illuminate for me why we and by we i mean society views him so starkly different than his players well it's because of the type of football that they played at florida and because they played that type of football at florida i'm not gonna regale you with tales of the university of florida past but just know that like a lot of schools want to win a certain way and florida for better for worse wants to win with attractive offense and florida did not do that under Will Muschamp, it was a big point of contention. Um, the offense was very much stuck in the past and never got itself figured out throughout his tenure there. And because of that, that's where some of the like Neanderthal stuff, like that's where that comes from. You know, obviously you've seen how intense he is, how much he yells, all that kind of stuff on the field during games. Um, all that stuff kind of rolls into one like i'm not going to say that that doesn't exist we've all seen the video where he punches the um 
where he punches the whiteboard to do your job video, all that kind of stuff. But like when you really get him talking and you kind of hanging out with him, like he is actually pretty easy to talk to, kind of easygoing. Um, and it's one of the reasons why his players really, really ride for him. The other reason, obviously, is that when things are going well, he's really intense um, and, and kind of like really focused. And yeah. when you're winning and that kind of stuff, like you kind of can build that cult of like 2012 was a lot of fun for that reason. The football product notwithstanding. Sure. A similar question to take us home. Who would you rather do this with for a month between Saban and Belichick? Like Saban at least. Saban is a guy who I'm at least convinced has interest outside of football. Like we can go on the boat. We can watch. He likes watching baseball. We can watch a little baseball. But Belichick is just like tough, man. He's like Belichick is like tough to talk to. Oh yeah, I I I could imagine myself having a normal conversation about life with Nick Saban. I really could. Like I don't think that he is a complete robot weirdo. Uh, but I can't really imagine having a smooth, nice conversation about much of anything with Belichick. Like Saban and I could like talk about golf, or he'd probably be like somewhat open about like you know west virginia or his family or whatever and i just like do not get the idea that it would be pulling teeth the same way i do with belichick so i'd rather hang out with nick saban saban i want to talk to saban about the fashion tips because look man saban got the drip and a lot of people don't realize it but under the radar my man be out here dressing for real um, he has he has it yeah so i think we could talk yeah. we can talk a little fashion nick saban does not wear sweatpants when he works from home Oh, there's no chance. I, right. I, 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 my man, like he's wearing slacks. He's definitely yeah, I, wearing slacks now. He might even be in a dress shirt. I mean, it's probably like a Bama, like athletic collared shirt, but he might even be in a dress, in a dress shirt at home. Sorry. It's honestly, it's totally possible. He's a boss. Alex, yeah. we went long this week. This is good. Um, Alex, buddy, stay safe. Um, and everybody out there listening to this as well, stay safe. Uh, and we'll be back next week.